Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen as Charlie Cook goes through his daily ritual of clearing enough crap off my desk to find a place to put the microphone. Charlie, is that a new bracelet you're wearing or, uh, or are you getting fitted for one at some point in the future thanks to uh, Eric Holder? Suffice it to say I will not be getting myself a gun bracelet. This is the story that last Friday in the House of Representatives at a appropriations hearing Eric Holder said that the Justice Department wanted to work on gun safety, this new phrase that has been trotted out after gun control has proven to be toxic. And Holder's idea, ostensibly, is to either fund or mandate he didn't quite say. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt and presume he just wants to spend money on the idea. Oh, let's not give him the benefit of the doubt. They want to mandate it. You know it's true. Well, he may want to mandate it, but he didn't say it. So let's presume that he didn't say it for a reason. The idea here is one that has been picked up by a wide range of people, and David Frum uh, likes this idea. And it essentially stems from the notion that guns are dangerous, which you might think is fairly obvious given that they are designed explicitly to maim and to kill people. They are self-defense weapons. They are aggressive uh, by nature. But that we should look to the example of, say, Ralph Nader in the car industry and fit our weapons with all sorts of gizmos that lower the accident rate and possibly the murder rate as well. Now, Eric Holder's suggestion is either bracelets that have some sort of RFID chip in them uh, or fingerprint technology, which I imagine he, like uh, Representative Tierney of Massachusetts, got from the Skyfall movie. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And that if we a very conservative movie, sure, sure, in lots of ways, absolutely. But, but you, could, but they can always get something bad out of even something like that. They can. But no, if we if we do this, that we will help to curb America's uh, gun violence problem, which it does exist. Now, I think there are so many objections to this. I don't know where to start, but they're probably easily divisible into two main groups. One is that there is, in fact, only one gun currently in the entire world that works like this. It doesn't work particularly well. It's extremely low caliber. It is available only in one store. Um, And the gun statistics do not show, too high as the number is, that the problem is accidents. The problem in the United States is predominantly suicide, after which it is violence. So that's the first thing. First of all, let's, uh, let's dwell on that for a second, because... They talk about gun safety as opposed to gun control, and it's attempt to sort of, you know, medicalize the uh, issue and say, mm-hmm. well, we can improve this through, you know, technology and various kinds of things. But if your largest category of gun-related injuries and deaths is suicide, there is no way to make a gun so safe that you can't kill yourself with it so long as it is functional. So right. it's impossible to make a gun that is suicide-proof and functional. So I think that, you know, I I dislike the whole category of gun deaths because accidents and murders and suicides are very different kinds of things. But when you break that down, suicide is by far the largest source of people dying uh, and associated with firearms. Well, and just to digress on, on this point of statistics, the gun control movement plays games all day with the statistics. As I say, two thirds of all gun deaths in the United States are suicides. Now, it is true 
uh, in a basic sense that if people didn't have guns with which to shoot themselves, they wouldn't be able to shoot themselves with guns. But always missing from the 30,000 death statistic is that breakdown. Yeah. And also that in countries where there are no guns, extremely heavily regulated, Japan, for example, the suicide rate is the same or higher. Yeah. Um, and in countries where there are an awful lot of guns, uh, Switzerland comes to mind, the suicide rate is lower. Yeah. So the, the, One they, of the other things about these stats that bothers the crap out of me is that I noticed in uh, one of these studies I was looking at, among the people who were counted as victims of gun deaths were criminals who died in the course of being apprehended for their crimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're talking about gun deaths resulting from shootouts with the police. I'm not aware of very many or any gun control advocates who want to disarm the police. No, no. I mean, the, the other interesting thing, just to continue the digression into statistics, is that Rifles account, all rifles this is, not those that are arbitrarily termed as uh, assault weapons. All rifles account for between 300 and 380 murders or suicides in a year. Yeah. They are uh, responsible, that's the wrong word, but for the sake of argument. For associated with. Associated with half the number of deaths that are inflicted by hands and fists, for yeah. example. They are associated with half the number of deaths that are associated with knives and with uh, blunt objects, and they are associated with fewer deaths than shotguns, which nobody ever suggests banning. Because and, that's a legitimate sporting rifle. Sure, and so you've got about, you know, let's say 350 to average it out, deaths from all rifles, and we spend an inordinate amount of time debating whether a f the few of those that are cosmetically different than the others so a should be banned. So a rate of roughly one per million in a society ourselves. Right. So not right. quite, not quite a little higher than that. You know, there was a similar thing, and just as long as we can talk about gun stuff all day, but... You know, there's a real practical reason why rifles aren't used in crimes a lot, which is that they're hard to conceal, and uh, they're not that common, and they're expensive. You know, California went through this thing a couple of years ago where they wanted to ban, where they wanted to ban 50 caliber rifles, mm -hmm. and one of the guys was talking about this particular model of rifle. It was uh, one of these uh, long distance target shooting rifles. You know, where you're shooting at things from a mile away. And he said, you know, with a criminal out there with this rifle could, you know, shoot through the armor on a car or something like that. And it was, yeah, you probably could shoot through an armored car with that. This rifle is six feet long and weighs 18 pounds and costs $26,000. No one's knocking over a liquor store with well, this Well, each gun. round is around 5 or $6. I yeah, I know. I, you know. Those 50 BMG rounds are, uh, yeah, about 5 bucks. last time I shot one of those each. And, uh, you know, I used to have a 50 caliber handgun, which is a different sort of 50. But, you know, it's a dollar every time you pull the trigger. It's yeah. not, you don't see those used in crimes ever because crimes largely, particularly street crimes, are committed by people who are trying to get money for something. And if you happen to have a $26,000 rifle in your possession, it's a hell of a lot easier than it is to, to, to sell it than it is to, you know, try to rob a bank with it and get $20,000 with your $25,000 rifle. Right. I mean, the, the focus, I think the point of this digression is, is that the statistics are misleading and, and we focus on the wrong thing. Yeah. The The other side of the uh, Eric Holder smart gun equation is that the way in which he talked, and I'm going to write this up for National Review later, the way in which he talked in the House was as if gun ownership was a privilege being conferred by the government and that it was acceptable for people to have their little hobbies, mm. providing the government could ensure that they would be safe. Now, the Heller decision, which finally and correctly established that the Second Amendment is protective of an individual right, 
has a standard in there which I'm not completely comfortable with, but is nonetheless the law of the land, as the left likes to say, and that is that guns in common use cannot be uh, restricted or banned. Right. Now, firstly, that means that the scope for the government actually to do anything about the uh, 300, 350 million firearms already in circulation is is limited. Um, it also means um, that the guns they wish to introduce, which are these um, these smart guns, would not initially be protected, right, yeah. <laughs> funnily enough, until they reached a certain critical mass. So that sort of inverts uh, the legal protection. So, um, you know, Holder is is obviously serious about this. But he's a great pro-stylist. <laughs> well, yes. I'm going to leave that for my piece, actually. Okay. The, the, the dissection of Eric Holder's language. But uh, it's probably worth saying to finish this topic that Eric Holder is one of those people who simultaneously spends his days dreaming up ways to restrict the right to bear arms, but considers any suggestion uh, that voter ID should obtain okay, yeah. to be uh, the return of Jim Crow. So maybe we should have, you know, uh, biometric scans on a voting booth. Or for that matter, can we put a GPS chip in Nick Kristoff just to make sure that, you know, he's not writing anything that's not actually under his name? Because if they want to know who's has guns and who's using them and that your Second Amendment rights can't be exercised in a way that's free of government oversight, then I want Paul Krugman with a chip in his head. You know, I want to keep track of this guy and find out what he's doing. In they're fact, not. They're not restricting your First Amendment oh, rights. Not, then. Not. They're just making sure that bad things don't. Right. Happen. Sure. And I think that you know there should be a congressional committee to review the daily output of the New York Times editorial page, just to make sure there's nothing libelous in it. Because it is. It is possible to because rights aren't infinite, Kevin. Right. It is possible to break the law through what you write. I mean, there are libel laws. There are defamation laws. There's invasion of privacy laws. I think we need some prior restraint on these guys just to make sure that these rights are not being exercised in a way that's inconsistent with our values as a democratic society. Right, and and this brings us to an interesting point, which is that all sorts of government action could change public problems. If you were to... Let's keep this to the harm principle. Hmm. There is no doubt that domestic violence is a problem. Sure. And I... I this could be wrong, so forgive me if it is, but I think I read that last year there were between two and three million reported incidents of domestic violence. Oh, I'd be surprised if there weren't more. Almost, I think, as well, I think it broke down to about 95 five men beating up women. Yeah. There's also child abuse, uh, and there is general uh, violence in bars and in public places. Now, if you were to install a telescreen into everyone's house you could probably restrict the incidences of domestic violence mm -hmm. if you had a vast police force that was monitoring the screams certain frequencies you could probably stop what is a real and an appalling problem and yet that is inimical inimical rather to the precepts of our society and right. our republic and we don't do that even though you could stop what is a very real problem so even if this is viable, it doesn't answer the question of whether the government should be even funding research and <laughs> subsidizing right. it. Yeah, and it's not like they've got a lot of money to spare that they can be using for more important things like, you know, avoiding fiscal apocalypse. But yeah, you can solve all sorts of problems with a panopticon. That doesn't mean you want a panopticon. Right, absolutely. Now, speaking of, 
of money and how it is spent and fairness and justice and truth and light and all of those things. We are misleading statistics. Yes, we are this morning once again being treated to this 77 cent statistic. Perhaps you could explain. Yeah, this makes me want to bang my head on the table because it's just complete BS. Uh, So this stat that we're always treated to endlessly discredited that women earn 77 cents for every dollar that men earn is produced this way. Take all the earnings of all the women who have full-time jobs and all the earnings of men who have full-time jobs and compare them. Yes, and you will come up with that, but that doesn't tell you anything about what sort of jobs they're in or how long they've been in the workforce or what kind of education they have or anything else. So all sorts of groups, economists, the American Association of University Women, a dozen different groups have looked at this. So when you start controlling for things like time in the workforce or what kind of job you have, because it turns out not all jobs pay the same, and there's a different distribution of men and women in different sorts of jobs, then this virtually disappears. And the last big thing, I think this was the American Association of University Women Study, uh, had a line in it that basically all of the remaining difference, which comes out to maybe three and a half cents, is explained by different choices that male and female workers make. And this is a real thing. You know, if you track people's progress through companies, you'll find men and women that have similar entry points and similar jobs and at some point in their career they'll make different decisions. For instance, men more often end up in sales jobs, particularly commission sales jobs, tends to be lopsidedly male. Uh, Women tend to be overrepresented in things like human resources and things like that. Now that may be that some nefarious sexist cabal somewhere is shunting all the women over to HR and putting them in in sales jobs, but it could also be other things like choices that people make. You know, commission sales is an inherently insecure job. Women are more risk-averse than men are. Uh, if you're working in HR rather than, say, in you know, management, you're likely to have a more regular schedule, which, if you have children, might be appealing to you. So people make different decisions for different reasons. The danger element, too. I read that last year, oh, sure, yeah. 12 to 1 deaths on the jobs male to female. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at people who are doing things like, you know, installing... Uh, glass at the top of the World Trade Center and things like that. Pretty much male occupation. Mm. Uh, and a fairly high-paid occupation, too. Uh, glaziers in tall buildings in New York make just tons of money. Uh, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a, it's a nice job. So, uh, people make different decisions about those sorts of things. And we all know this. I mean, you know, you walk into an elementary school and you notice the male teachers. Mm-hmm. Because there's relatively few of them. Um, you know, you go to other sorts of, of positions and you'll notice women there because they stand out because there are relatively few women in those Construction. jobs. Construction. Construction, bouncers, things like that. You know, you, not that you would go into a strip club, but if you did go into a strip club, you would notice a very pronounced division of labor between the people collecting the money at the door and the people performing on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just, you know, people make different sorts of decisions about things. And, um, and, and also has to do with how people choose to be compensated. And this is a big thing about how people make decisions. So a lot of very high-paid jobs are not salary jobs. You know, they're jobs that you get equity and, uh, you know, stock options, things like that, or commission sales. So I worked in a number of organizations uh, when I was in the newspaper business where we had this odd thing where you have someone who was the head of the advertising department who made a lot less money than some of the people who worked for him or her who were salespeople because they were very successful salespeople and their commissions were so high that they made you know more money than their supervisors did. Now the difference was of course the supervisor's income is guaranteed. It's a salary. It's you know the same thing every two weeks. 
So you do have, you know, I wrote a, a long article about this a couple of years ago called uh, Risk Relativism and Resources about why people make various kinds of political decisions. And one thing you'll find that's very different between women and men, between African Americans and whites, and between uh, people who identify as Democrats and people who identify as uh, Republicans, is the appetite for financial risk. Uh, conservatives are less conservative about these things. They are, they are much less risk averse than people on the other side. And those things have real consequences for your income. You know, if you never take any chances, if you never, you know, take a job that has either a commission or a, an equity component or something like that, where you're just a straight salary position, you cut yourself off from opportunities to, to make uh, more money. And, you know, if you look at the list of very, very wealthy people, you know, people at the high end of the income spectrum, there are very few people who make that much money on salary. I mean, there are very few salaried positions that pay you a million dollars a year outside of things like professional sports and that kind of thing. Even CEOs of big companies generally aren't paid that much in salary. They make they might make a hundred million dollars over the course of a five-year deal, but if you look at that, it's mostly going to be in the form of options and equity and things like that. So yeah, it's a totally BS statistic, but it's another excuse to have government intervene in the economy and to try to micromanage how businesses run. And this is what the left wants to do. It's what it's always wanted to do. And if it's not this, it'll be, you know, some other excuse, energy or uh, or whatever. Yeah, I think what particularly interests me politically is that everybody knows, regardless of where they come down, I mean, you said it might be four or five cents. Some of that is the product of not just women's choices, but I think women's uh, are worse at negotiating that it's been suggested. Uh, their salaries, and so I'm not familiar with this. Tell me about it. Well, I mean, I've read a bunch of these pieces, and this was evident in a couple of them. But you know, one one of the arguments I forget who wrote it was that women tend not to be as aggressive when they're asking for salaries. They hmm. tend to ask for a lower initial salary, or they're worse at, at sort of establishing formally that they are worth more than they're paid than are men. Yeah. Now, regardless of whether you go all the way up to, to the, well, it's only five cents and there are other mitigating factors, or you think that it's a, a real problem, everybody knows that this 77 cents line is a lie. Yeah. The White House had to back off, actually, at a press conference, I think, yesterday, when a reporter asked about it, um, and yet Obama said it in the State of the Union. Yeah. And Slate has conceded that this is nonsense. Yeah. This is a wide, and yet they still said. And that interests me politically because... It strikes me that this is not really being used by the administration and by the Democratic Party as uh, an indication that they're going to do something about the wage gap. It's being used as moral positioning. Yeah. We're on the side of women. The world is unfair. Republicans want women to starve and to earn less than men because they think women... I mean, I don't, I don't want to over-dramatize this, and I don't literally mean that Democrats are thinking like this, but it's sort of an analog of, you know, three-fifths of a man, right? right. Like, look at these women. They're worth 77% of men, and Republicans want to keep it that way. This isn't really an economic argument, especially after what the Lily Ledbetter act in 2011 yeah. that I was thought was supposed to fix this. Yeah, I think it's it's a political equivalent as flashing gang signs. You know, it's just an expression of tribal affiliation, and that's really all there is to it. Because I don't think anyone seriously thinks that uh, the federal government can pass a law through Congress and make this go away, but it can vote itself a stronger whip hand over the economy, particularly for big companies, uh, which have to uh, which have to deal with this sort of thing in a, in a more... Uh, 
in a more intense way because they, I mean, they generally tend to leave smaller firms alone when they come in. Even like things in the healthcare regulation, that means larger firms face a higher regulatory burden than smaller ones do for the most part. So, yeah, I think that you're right about that. It's really just more of a case of moral preening than it is an actual economic agenda. But then, of course, the whole history of the Obama administration has been moral preening, not an economic agenda. If they had much of an economic agenda, the economy might look different than it does. Well, what can be done about it? Anything? Can a law fix this at all, or is this just one of those things that eventually will work itself out? Well, I think it may already have. I mean, you look at things like college graduation rates, uh, you know, grad school, things like that. Women are outperforming men pretty much across the board. Uh, for people of your generation, I believe people who are, you know, in their 30s or under, uh, the, the wage gap is, is currently in the opposite direction where women are earning more. That may be that may be limited to, to white women. I'm not, I can't remember the study exactly. But there is, you know, indication that women in that generation would be earning more than the men are. So, uh, yeah, it's not exactly the sort of thing that's a uh, that can't sort itself out uh, without the tender attentions of the Obama administration, the Department of Labor, and all the rest of these geniuses, and Eric Holder in his fine pro style. So I thought maybe we would just finish by a little reprise of yesterday's conversation oh, on yeah. the subject of the capacity of the market to sort out discrimination. Um, it has been suggested in response to our discussion and also something you wrote yesterday that your reliance upon the process of the market is really just uh, a dodge and that you don't want a law that makes, for example, the firing of Brendan Eich or the forced resignation of Brendan Eich uh, illegal. And you don't want a law that makes it illegal to fire somebody because they are, say, gay but that when it came to the point at which the market should magically work, you would always, in every single case, oppose the market kicking out the so-called bigot. Is that fair? Well, no. Um, you know, in the case of Brendan Eichhardt, I think that something I think should be pointed out that really has been missing from this discussion is that California, New York, and the District of Columbia actually have state laws, or in the case of D.C., a, a local law, that makes it illegal to discriminate against someone for their political views, either to fire them from their job or to create a hostile work environment in the in the language of the civil rights laws. So what Mozilla did probably was against the law in California. And not only do I think it's um, I think it's wrong that what happened to Brendan Ike happened, but I would certainly support repealing the law that makes it illegal to do the thing that I think is wrong because it's a dumb law. Right, because because you can simultaneously believe that there should be no laws right. prohibiting people from being fired for for terrible reasons, yeah. but also that the bar for the markets getting rid of people should be pretty high. Yeah, you know, yesterday we were talking about this a little bit, and so you and I were going over, well, what kind of businesses would we boycott, you know, and... Uh, and again, it's a pretty high bar. You know, as I pointed out, you know, abortion is just a, a fundamental thing for me. It's a literal life and death issue. But if I found out that my local deli owner was a pro-choicer or had given $10,000 to NARAL or something like that, I probably still wouldn't boycott them over it. Um, it would have to be something that was not only that didn't accord with my, my own politics and my own values, 
but that seemed to me, you know, malicious and nasty in a pretty dramatic sort of way. So if I found out that, um, you know, take the same local local deli that it, you know, wouldn't seat gay couples and serve them, or if it categorically refused to hire blacks or Jews. If Brendan Eich had come in and said, I'm going to discriminate against the people here, I'm not going to hire gay people, I'm going to pay them less, I'm going to make their life difficult, because this is the point that is missed. He didn't. He didn't do anything of the sort. In fact, he went out of his way to do the opposite. The reason that he was deemed unacceptable was because a private donation five years ago had gone to a group that the employees didn't like. Yeah. That has to be really kept in mind. And I was trying to think of the of the speech cases, if any of them would come up to my bar. And I don't think they would. I don't think that Alec Baldwin was deserved to be hounded out. I don't think that Martin Bashir even deserved to be hounded out. I don't think the Dixie Chicks deserved to have a great backlash for what they said. Of course people have a right to do that, but it wouldn't have come up to my bar. Certainly Phil Robertson of Dark Dynasty, I don't think he came up to that bar and we were talking about Indian restaurants and how dangerous this can actually be I forget who you said wrote the piece I think it was Rod Dreher I want to say who was talking about some bodega he used to go to in Brooklyn when he lived there and that it was owned by Yemeni immigrants and who were always you know nice and polite and and all that but he sort of guessed that you know if they were typical uh, of people coming from that culture at this time, that they probably had some attitudes about Jews, women, homosexuals, things like that, that he would find distasteful. Now, of course, if this wasn't Rod, by the way, sorry, Rod, but I want to say from memory it was, it was Rod Dreher's column on this, that um, he didn't go out of his way to bring it up, of course, but at the same time, you know, at some other place he lived, he was shopping at some hippy-dippy organic food co-op that had really good produce, and he was also pretty sure that if he talked to the people who ran that place, he would come up with some just, you know, offensive and awful uh, political opinions. Now, I've actually, you know, I've gone to see Alec Baldwin perform uh, on Broadway, and I hate to admit it, he's an awfully good actor. Uh, so, you know, I would not support, you know, blackballing someone like that, even though he's got some fairly uh, odious opinions and a, and a pretty bad way of expressing them. So, yeah, the case of Indian restaurants we're talking about, because you being uh, Britain all, a lot of the Indian restaurants there, of course, Bangladeshi operated, and uh, you get some very conservative, let us say, in that sense of the word, uh, Muslim attitudes among people who, who run those places. And some of those attitudes are pretty illiberal and, uh, and occasionally even uh, shocking. Yes. Now, if they if they extend it to the restaurant, then I would boycott it. I mean, if they were anti-Semitic, if they refused to hire people because they were white, if they enforced segregation of the sexes. Yeah, if they did anything. Yeah. But you get talking to the owners of, of Indian restaurants, and I'm English, I spend a lot of my time in Indian restaurants as the British national dish, yes. and you know, you get talking and say, oh, what are you doing this summer? And they say, oh, I'm, I'm going back to Bangladesh. Oh, how long are you going for? Well, three months. Oh, why is that? I'm going to find a wife. You get talking a little bit, and you know, they come back with the wife, and then the wife never comes downstairs ever. Um, it's just not allowed to come downstairs, and because she isn't. Yeah. <laughs> and and they will say it uh, very much like that, and little things slip out now, and they're very nice people, but who have these, in my view, anti-deluvian <laughs> retrograde views toward women. But of course, their children don't. Right. So what do you do? Do you do you uh, metaphorically burn down their restaurant, or do you? 
let it go, recognize they come from a certain place, and then realize that you know their immigrant children grow up being pretty English, really. Yeah, and I was and I was thinking about this. You know, uh, you live in a very blue area. I live in not only in Manhattan, but in you know below Fourteenth Street, Manhattan, which is pretty much just you know uniformly left wing. And I'm trying to think if there's anyone that I do business with on a regular basis whom I know to be conservative. And, you know, I can't come up with one. I can't think of one. Uh, it's just, you know, pretty much uniformly people well, who disagree with me politically, but I certainly don't want to boycott them. No, but and, and where it's interesting is even outside of a, a blue area, a very blue area, such as the, the, the bottom end of Manhattan, you find all sorts of donations, contributions, uh, excerpts from people who, uh, frankly, would would pay very quickly if we started a, a witch hunt. And Mother Jones, the Daily Caller, had a piece on the CEO of OKCupid, who I think it was eight years ago gave to a staunchly anti-gay marriage politician. Who was morning. it? Do you remember? And OKCupid, of course, was one of the leaders of the anti ice That's the, that's the point. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. I, and he was in one of the western states, Idaho, Utah, Nevada. Yeah. I can't remember which. But he gave uh, quite a lot of money to this individual who was staunchly anti-gay marriage. And John, uh, uh, sorry, William Salatan in Slate had a, a humorous piece basically pointing out that you would need to fire, was it 25,000 people in Silicon Valley if yeah. we were to go down this road. So it's not just a matter of, of you being a conservative in a very blue area. Do you know anybody? But in the very location of this little tornado uh, are swathes of people who are susceptible to being being kicked out. Yeah, oh, and I was, maybe we should close out on this, but I was pointing out that, you know, as a matter of, uh, not entirely a matter of politics, but partly as a matter of taste, I did, within recent memory, walk out of a place. I was at a place called uh, ABC, which is down by Union Square, which is a furniture uh, place, and they sell really pretty nice stuff, and I, and I was buying some stuff there, and I bought some stuff there before, and I went there to get something, and I walk in, and I have this collection, everywhere you look, you can't get through the place without these giant posters designed by Yoko Ono that were anti-fracking, and the evils of fracking, and I was looking around, and it's like, there's not one damn thing in that store that's not made out of oil you know, or transported with oil-based transportation or something like that. And so everyone's allowed to have their politics, but as a matter of taste, just a question of taste, the prevalence of these Yoko Ono displays made me made me rethink uh, my shopping there. So there's your bar, Yoko Ono. Yoko Ono uh, is pretty close to uh, defining, if not as a purely political matter, I don't even know what her politics are, than that she's anti-fracking, apparently. I'm sure they're horrible. I mean, she's a lunatic. I'm right. sure she's a lunatic. But I, as, a, as a purely aesthetic thing, I've got to say Yoko Ono, beyond the pale.